Can't we all just get along? Or as we subtitled the message last week in the first part, how to handle offenses. And I appreciate um, Pastor Jim a couple weeks ago on Sunday night went through some of these principles on dealing with confrontation, and I wish the entire church could have been a part of that. And sometimes we miss out what's taking place in other times of the week because we can't always make it to every time something is shared here at the church. But uh, oftentimes Sunday night is a great time of discussion. I wish more could have been there for that. Well, in review, I have bragged, as I said last week on our church, over the past several years regarding what I and maybe others perceive as a um, place of unity and peace. I really do believe that. Relatively speaking, I do believe that we are experiencing far better unity and peace than many, many other churches. But the question, though, is not are we better than other churches? The question is, are we the church God wants us to be in terms of peace and unity? And we said a couple last week, it's one thing to be better or to have more peace and unity than other churches, really, though this doesn't really matter in the big picture. It's quite another thing to be a church that God wants us to be in terms of our love and unity with each other. It's so easy to come into church every week and we put a smile on our face and we shake, shake each other's hands, give each other a hug. But that all really can be such a facade at times. It really can. Because really none of us wants to be jerks. None of us wants to have the idea that, uh, you know, I'm going to tell them all my problems. I'm going to really tell them off because they really torqued me this in this area, you know, three years ago or 27 years ago or whatever it was. So we put the congenial smile on our face, shake the hand, give a hug, and walk away really with a false sense of peace and unity at times. So we said it's one thing to have peace and unity because you genuinely love one another, though you may have differing opinions. It's quite another thing to have peace and unity as a result of avoiding one another or someone specifically in particular. See, there's a big difference between that. When you genuinely love someone, we can have peace and unity based on that genuine love. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Or we can kind of have the same perceived peace and unity. And notice I use the word perceived because really we're not arguing, we're not fighting, we're not really experiencing disunity, but that's only because I don't talk to them. I avoid them. If I see them in the store, I go this way. If I see them in the church, I go down this way. I just kind of avoid them so I don't get in myself in a situation where I have to confront, have any type of confrontation or discussion with them. They both give the idea that there's peace and unity, but one is based on genuine love, the other one is based on avoidance. One's real, one's fake. We don't want to be a church that has fake unity, fake peace, the type of peace that we know will not last. And then you see that, as we said last week, we see this in examples such as, I used to serve fill in the blank, but so-and-so took it over, and I just kind of avoid them now. Kind of irritated with them, so I just kind of avoid I used to be involved with such and such, but so-and-so took that over too, and they want to do it their way, so I'm just going to avoid them. 
Kind of have the idea. Who died? Put them in charge. We're doing just fine without them. Why did they have to step in? So, I avoid. What does God want us to do? How does God want us to respond? Well, it often appears that things are going well at church. And the reality is that things may not always be as they appear. And as I ask the question finally in review is, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. When there's sin that is undealt with, God's hand of blessing will not be upon us. We have to deal with sin issues. We have to deal with these issues so that God's hand of blessing is not removed from us. Where there's unresolved conflict in the church, and we as a church choose not to deal with it, there are consequences. So as we begin today's message, let me just say, there will undoubtedly be times of friction, frustration, disagreement, disappointment, even times of unkindness and hatefulness between brothers or believers in Christ. Say, not in the church. No. Yeah. Why do you think churches split all across the country on a regular basis? Someone didn't get their way. Someone thought they should do it this way, but they did it this way, and they're torqued. And they couldn't let it go. So, division comes, and discord sets in. If you've never experienced it, it may be because you even haven't been around long enough, or you simply avoid people at any cost. You're an introvert. You don't talk to anybody. That's one way not to have friction. But as long as you're in this world, you're going to have friction. You're going to have disagreement. You're going to have disappointment. You're going to have unkindness at times. How do you deal with it? Run. And oftentimes, if you run from those kinds of problems, you'll take those problems with you to the next place you run to. Hands down, it will happen. I think all of us have experienced these types of things one time or another. How do we handle these situations? Well, I think we kind of respond in three different ways sometimes. There is a fourth way. But some of you respond in anger or retaliation. I'm just going to get torqued and I don't care who knows it. Is that you? Get angry. I'm justified in my anger. We see this biblically as well. Remember when in 2 Chronicles, Hanani the seer approached Asa about something he was doing? And Asa got so torqued with him that he had Hanani put in prison. That's one way to handle confrontation. You know, like me, I'm just going to throw you in jail. <laughs> Done with you. You can respond that way. It won't get you too far. Some of you become bitter or miserable. How do you know that's you? Someone says, what's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> Anybody ever heard that response before? And you know something's very wrong at that point. But they're building, busy building the brick wall. I mean, they're throwing the block on, they're throwing the mortar on, they're throwing the block on, they're they're putting a wall between you and them. Because you become bitter and miserable. And you know, oftentimes I've found that when someone really ticks you off and you're starting to get really irritated with it, they've moved on. They could care less that you're torqued. And the only one you're harming by building that wall between you and them is you. I think sometimes there's a third way we respond. You hide. You avoid. You retreat. You leave. 
it's when you see him at Wegmans and you pretend you didn't see him even though you know it's right in front of you. You go down a different aisle just to avoid. You pretend you didn't see him and you know good and well you did. And they know good and well you did. But here's the question. How would God have you to respond? Because it's going to happen in the body of Christ. I wonder if before we answer that question, could we illustrate the situation by talking about uh, the concept of a family and by addressing a simple question about the perceived offense or the difference or the irritation, the sin, etc.? What is a family? I don't know about yours, but I love my family. I have a wife, I have four children, and we have a family. Families have people, right? I mean, that's what makes up families, people. And one thing that's true about people is that people aren't perfect. At least mine aren't. Maybe yours are. Mine aren't. Because I know I'm a part of it. And I know I'm not perfect. But families have people, and people aren't perfect. Furthermore, imperfect people irritate each other. Often. I want my way. I want to do it this way. I want to go here. I want to buy that. I want to do this. And it all wraps around this thing called me, myself, I, what, what pleases me, what, what gratifies my flesh. And as long as families have people and people aren't perfect, there are going to be irritations. But here's what I found out in families. Just because my son irritates me doesn't mean that I kick him out of the house. Just because my daughter irritates her brother doesn't mean that one of them has to leave. Is that true? How many of you have had children who didn't do what you expected them to do? Right? Every hand? Right? On the average, we're going to have offenses on a regular basis. But we don't just kick them out just because. We work through it because we're families. And families should love each other. Does not God say that we are a family? Anybody ever heard that concept before? Amen? Yeah, we're a family. We should be a close-knit family. Why do we sometimes leave the church family? Why don't we work to resolve conflict in the church family? I think if we were to take the time here this morning, we all know somebody who used to be part of the church family that are no longer here. And I think if we could get right down to the roots of it, where the rubber meets the road, somebody irritated them. Somebody frustrated them. Somebody just torqued them off, and rather than deal with it, or maybe they try to deal with it in an incorrect way, and they're out of here. And then you meet up with them later, and you hear this, well, the church did. No, it wasn't the church. It was so-and-so. But the church gets blamed for what an individual did. But that's natural because we're all part of one family. And we all know people who used to be part of the family who left the family by choice and rejoined a different family. That's not a biblical thing, I don't think. To leave without resolving conflict, at least. I realize that sometimes God moves people on. But most of the time, it's not God that moves people on. It's our unresolved conflict that moves people on. 
I wonder, second question, before we get into dealing with the conflict. I wonder, do we sometimes misconstrue what is a legitimate sin or offense with what may be simply a differing opinion? It's illogical to think that everyone has to agree with me and what I think is right or best. That's illogical. But yet, in our selfishness, that's what we expect of people. They should agree with me because my idea is better. My idea is right. My solution is the correct solution. I mean, I have experience. I've got wisdom. I've got this uh, past circumstance that this worked and it'll work here. And then why won't people listen? It's illogical to think that everyone's going to be in agreement 100% with what I think is best and right. But yet we expect it. For example... Chevy versus Dodge. Everyone knows Chevy is better, right? But how about when it gets a little bit more particular? Tan versus gray in the fellowship hall. Because gray is the new tan. No, it's still gray. (laughs) No, we don't have that problem, thankfully. But we can get strong opinion over what we think is the right color. And churches have split, I kid you not, over the carpet choice and over the color of walls. You think that doesn't happen today? It does happen. Because we are strong enough to think that our opinion is right. Vinyl or wood? Well, I like wood. Well, she likes vinyl. Who wins? Traditional or contemporary? Does that not have been a struggle in churches across the last century or last decade? Traditional or contemporary? I don't like one. Not only is it illogical to think that everyone has to agree with me and what I think is right or best, it's unnatural to believe that everyone will like and want the same thing as you in every situation. It's unnatural. But yet we expect it. So we have misconstrued a differing opinion versus a legitimate sin. It's just a different opinion. My opinion is that my Dodge rides like a brick truck. I hate it. I wish I would have bought a Chevy. Just my opinion. I talk to guys every day, though, that love Dodge. So get over it. But when it's a legitimate sin... And folks, we can't call everything that somebody does differently than me a sin. We have to deal with it. So if it's just a different opinion, I like what somebody once said, cry a river, build a bridge, and get over it. Really. Cry a river, build a bridge, and get over it. Because it really doesn't matter in light of eternity that you like Chevy versus Ford that you like tan versus gray, that you like wood versus vinyl, that you like traditional versus contemporary. When you stand before God, which of those things will really matter? None of them. But man, we can get divisive over those things. Can't we? Not in our church, though. Our church is an exception. You don't get to have your way every time. No one does. So I have to ask this question. If so-and-so irritates me, did they sin against me? 
Or is it just that we have a differing opinion? And God's word says we're to live peaceably with all men. As much as possible within us, live peaceably with all men. There may be times that you have to simply say, you know what? That's your choice. Oh, well, no big deal. Move on. Next. But there's something innate within us that we don't like to do that. We want to let them know that our choice is better. And if they don't respond the way we want them to respond, well, bless God, I'm going to be torqued. And everyone's going to know about it. If you would take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be here for a little bit this morning. I want to begin reading with verse 15. I'm going to read down through verse 20 to start with. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and tax collector to you, those people that you really love to spend time with. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Lord Jesus, I ask God that you would speak to our hearts. And Lord God, I pray that we all in this congregation this morning be honest about whether or not there are people in our midst, in our sphere of influence, in our realm, in our family, in our church family, Lord, that we are at odds against. Lord, may we deal with that so that we may not have a reason not to have your blessing on this church. I pray, God, that the peace and the unity that we have, Lord, would be genuine because of a genuine love for one another in the body of Christ. In this particular body, God, we ask for your blessing. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. When Jesus addressed how to deal with offenses in Matthew 18, earlier in the chapter, he instructed believers to cut off the hand or the foot that causes the offense to a little child or a young believer in the faith. However, when he addresses how to deal with a brother who offends you, and his his instruction was not to cut him off, but to seek to regain an offending brother by following specific guidelines, as we just read about. So first of all, he says, if your brother, and by the way, the word brother insinuates that there is a what? A family. But more specifically, uh, many people miss the word brother and go straight to the word sin. Do we look at that brother as a brother in Christ? That person who did whatever it is that we perceive that they have done, do we look at them as a brother in Christ? And let me just say, I am guilty of this. I believe all of us are guilty of this. There are times that someone irritates us and we get torqued to high heaven about it and we want to go right to the sin rather than looking at the situation and say, you know what, there's a couple of questions here I have to ask. Number one, do I believe that they did this on purpose? Because 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that love thinks no evil. And so if this situation comes or we hear something that was said, do we immediately say, well, no, that I must have misunderstood it. I must, have mis- I must not have heard correctly. Because I know that they would not have done this on purpose. 
See, the difference is if I love that brother, if I love that sister in Christ, the bottom line is I'm not going to immediately jump to the conclusion that they did this on purpose and they meant to hurt me. Love covers a multitude of what? Sins. And that's why last week we spent some time looking at the basis of all this, is that there has to be genuine love for one another. And if there's not love, you will not have the right conclusion. There has to be love. So he says, if your brother, as it says here in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, and then you have to ask yourself this question, is there really a legitimate sin? So many people miss the word brother and immediately go to sins, but the word brother means that there is a brother in faith. There's a part of a family in Christ here. There's a brother whose burdens we are commanded to bear and whom the ministry of every one another passage is to be exercised as we looked at last week. Love one another. It's the very foundation of walking in fellowship and unity in the body of Christ. And believers must be sure that love is not modeled better outside the church than it is modeled inside the church. The church ought to be a place of peace and rest. Do you believe that? Thank you, someone. The church ought to be a place of peace and rest. I don't know about you, but the workforce can be difficult to handle at times. When you're working with unsaved people, unregenerate people, on a regular basis, when you're listening to cussing and swearing and crudity and all these other things, why in the world would you want to deal with that all week and then find the same spirit within the church? The church ought to be a place of rest. It ought to be a place of peace. It ought to be a place of harmony. And what destroys that is selfishness and a lack of love. So, if a brother sins against you, against you is not necessarily found in some of the Bible's texts, but it really doesn't matter because when a brother sins, it's against all who are part of the body. Because remember, we are one. And as we looked at in 1 Corinthians, when we have a sore somewhere, a sore spot somewhere in the body, the whole body gets the benefit of that soreness. When your back hurts, you say, well, it's not my foot. Yeah, but the back makes you not feel good, right? When you got a toothache, do you feel like going out and doing construction? No. When you, get, when you sprain your ankle, does, do you feel like going walking around? No. The whole body gets the result or the consequence of one part hurting. So when one causes discord in the body, it affects the whole. Because we are a family. And we are one body. So, well, no one else really knows about this. God knows about it. Are we willing to deal with it? When someone tries to talk with you and you say, well, you say, is something wrong? No, nothing's wrong. Everything's good. And we are lying straight through our teeth. It affects the entire body. And we need to deal with it. If a little leaven affects the whole lump of dough, then a brother who sins affects all within the family of Christ. Because this brother has missed the mark and come short of God's objective standards and principles found in God's Word. So what do we do? If it is a legitimate sin, he says to go. To go. This is where the breakdown usually occurs within the church family. Because we don't want to stir the pot. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to cause any waves. I'm just going to pretend it's not there. I just want to disregard it. I want to just kind of pretend it never happened, go on my merry way, and I avoid. 
And as I avoid, I have this pretend peace and unity. He says to go. Now let me just say this. If you love confrontation, you're messed up in the head. Nobody enjoys confrontation. But yet God's Word says you're to do it. You're to go to them. But this is where the breakdown usually occurs. Because we don't want to deal with it. You say, well, I'm an introvert. I just don't like to be around people. And then, you know, I just don't want to get over it. doesn't matter your temperament. God says go. This step of obedience is what will determine whether you'll experience real peace and unity or fake peace and unity. To go is a great demonstration of genuine love towards the offending brother. Going to restore an offending brother is the way a fellow believer fulfills the law of Christ, according to Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, and bears with that brother in love, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. It takes a step of genuine love, just as you would your own child, just as you would your brother or sister, just as you would your grandfather, your grandmother. Families are to be units of love. So it's no different in the body of Christ. Here's one. If you intend to wait for him to come to you, you might be waiting a while. Because they're not going to come. Most people that offend you or sin against you, half the time they don't even realize it. And the other half, they don't care. So then why deal with it? Because it's commanded in Scripture. It's a biblical thing to do. To keep genuine peace and unity. So he says, go. Back in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, keep your finger in Matthew 18, but go back to Matthew chapter 5 just for a moment. Here's something that might be an impetus for us to follow this principle. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, He says, so if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and reconcile with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. What's he saying? Go deal with it. Deal with it. But so much more in the body of Christ. Because if you don't, you're going to miss the blessings of God. Going is the first step in regaining a brother. And if you truly love, you'll go. You have to. And then he says there in Matthew chapter 18, as we come back to our text, and rebuke him. It's obvious that some brothers can't see their own fault. You ever talk to a person like that? I didn't do that. No, I never said that. It could be recorded and videotaped and they'd still deny it. There are people like that. I've met them. You've met them. Maybe at times we've been that person. I don't know. But it's obvious that some brothers can't see their fault and they need someone to show them from Scripture why what they did was either sinful or wrong. According to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, it could be due to a seared conscience and they need to have their conscience awakened by the word of the Lord. Sin dulls the conscience, and it needs to be reproved by the Spirit to bring that brother to repentance. 
So it's important to realize whether that question is correct or not. Is it sin or is it just a differing opinion? If it's sin, show me this chapter and verse. Show me how it is against God, how it breaks a, a, a biblical principle, how it breaks, goes against or contrary to the word of God. If it's just your opinion, cry a river, build a bridge, get over it. Because they may not see it and they don't care. But it says rebuke him. And you better pray before you do this. Better pray. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But then it says also in our passage, in private. You've heard the phrase, if you're not part of the problem, you're not part of the solution. That means I don't get out the phone and say, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so did to me this week. They absolutely torqued me off and they blah, 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 blah. I'm telling you, that is a struggle for all of us. I'm telling you it is. I'm trying. Last week I was preaching to myself. I'm telling you I was. And just as soon as you're over, it's like, I am going to kill so-and-so with kindness. I am going to love that person to death if I have to. And they irritate you right afterwards. I'm telling you it's hard. Because I want to do what's right. I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to respond as God wants me to respond. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh. And then someone will ask you a question. It's just like, you're just like a bullet waiting to go off. That's hard. Because you just want to vent. So-and-so has irritated you to high heaven, and I'm going to let people know. I'm going to get on the horn. And then there's some people who have to put everything that happens in life on Facebook for the world to understand and see. And I'm sitting there going, I'm embarrassed for them. I'm not even part of that family. Whoa. They're not part of the problem. They're not part of the solution. Going alone to the offending brother shows that your motive is restoration. So I want to restore this relationship. Let it be done in private, just the two of you. No whispering or gossip, just a private meeting between the offended and the offender alone. But here's the beauty of it. If he listens, the next phrase in Matthew 18 here. To listen in Scripture means a whole lot more than just hearing sound and recognizing words. You ever had that conversation with somebody who really didn't want to have a conversation? And you're talking and they're like, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, 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 mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. And you're just irritated because they won't even look you in the eye. See, they're hearing the words, but they're not really listening. The writer of Proverbs defined listening as diligent and obedient. A face-to-face conversation where there's both a giving and receiving of information. Then communication is taking place. The proper response to listening means to repent over the sin. To hear and understand how it affected others. To have godly sorrow about it. And to diligently work toward never doing it again. You see, true repentance comes as I'm going this way and I'm confronted with the sin and then I turn my back on it and now I begin to go this way. 
That's when repentance takes place. It means to view that sin the same way that God views that sin. It's not, I'm sorry, but you... My wife taught me this our first year of marriage. I'm sorry, but you... No, 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 no. Stop right there. (laughs) It's I'm sorry, not I'm sorry, but... Because I can't control what other people do. I'm not called to respond to what other people, or I mean, called to control what other people do. God has told me that I am responsible for me. And you are responsible for you. I have to respond the way God has for me to respond. Even though I get irritated. And I got to deal with that then. Then I got to deal with the guilt of being of responding wrong in my flesh, because God's word says if you have even hate towards your brother, it's the same as what murder. It's like ah, oh, that's tough. I don't want to deal with that. I mean, I'm not that guy, right? You're not that person, right? And we just overlook what Scripture says. But He says if he listens. You've won a brother. This is the whole purpose or aim to gain a brother back. To restore the family back to unity and peace. We are to forgive the brother who asks and restore him back to fellowship. This practice is like resetting the bone that has been broken. It's to put it back in place. So that everyone might share in their ministry and build up the body in love, according to Ephesians 4.16, till we all come into the unity of faith. So let me give you a couple of suggestions regarding handling these offenses. And let's just kind of lay the foundation first of all. Be sure it's a sin, and not just a differing opinion. You're allowed to have a different opinion. Though God tells us to work together, to be in unity, that doesn't mean 100% of us are always going to have the exact same opinion. But are we working towards unity, towards peace, towards genuine love for one another that overlooks a multitude of sins, that says, I genuinely care for my brother? If it's sin, we have to deal with it. If it's a differing opinion, get over it. You don't have to agree on every little color scheme and so forth. But let me give you three suggestions regarding handling offenses. Matthew chapter 7 is the first one. And verse 5. It says, Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take a splinter out of your brother's eye. What's he saying here? Be sure your own attitude is right before God. A little self-evaluation might be necessary before you confront someone else's sin. That's something we don't always do. Kind of the idea that, well, we're right. They're wrong. I'm right. They're wrong. But is there a possibility that you could be wrong? If you're going to be bold in confronting someone else's sin, you better evaluate your own life. Is there something that you have done to contribute to the problem? the sin that has occurred. If we're not willing to do that, we might as well stop the process. 
Because you can't point at someone else's sin when you have sin in your own that you haven't dealt with. You may be part of the, con- the part of the problem. Number two, Ephesians chapter four verse thirty-two reminds us that we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Are you willing to forgive? Well, of course not. They've done this over and over and over again. And every time I forgive them, they just come back and do it again. I can't believe they just keep doing this. How many times do you sin against God in a given day? Given week? Given month? Since you were born? And God, over and over and over again, as we repent, 1 John 1, 9, as we confess our sins, he what? Forgives us. Over and over. Just as he forgives us, we're to forgive others. So Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3.13, forgive as he's forgiven us. Number three, be willing to help restore one overtaken in sin with a gentle spirit. Let me have you turn there just for a moment. This is not necessarily church discipline, per se, but it is a brother helping another brother who has been overtaken in sin become right with God. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Right off the bat there, once again, in line with Matthew 7, if I am to help someone else be get stronger, I must be what? Myself. Strong. And that really is a great impetus to make sure that you're walking with God. That you're walking in peace and unity with your Heavenly Father. And as you do that, you can be strong enough to help someone else become stronger. So he says here, Carry one another's burdens in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Once again, self-evaluation. Make sure you're right with the Lord. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. But verse 6, Let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teachers. The bottom line is, we're to help one another become stronger in the body of Christ. And the only way we can help someone else get stronger is if we're strong ourselves. So be sure your attitude is right before God. Be willing to forgive as God has forgiven you. Be willing to help restore one overtaken in sin. As believers, it is our prayer to never need to continue the process of church discipline. But sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes we can approach a brother and they just, for the life of them, will not, they will not admit it, they'll not confess, they'll not repent. They'll just, That's your problem, go deal with it. So then what? Is that just the end of the road? If it is a legitimate sin. Once again, he tells us what to do to solve this. Matthew chapter 18, look at verse 16. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. Do you realize that there are times that you are wrong? Yeah, there's times you are wrong. And sometimes it takes an outside person after you've tried to deal with it and it's not resolved to say, wait a minute, you're overlooking something very obvious. You did. 
I caused this. You ever gotten to that point before? I have. I want to jump to conclusion that they did, and I'm missing the obvious of what I did to cause them to do this. But I'm just concentrating on what they did. I'm guilty. Maybe you are too. But not only for that, he says, the facts. You can't deal with I thinks. I think they did this. I think they said that. I think they told. I think that. You can't deal with that. Because what you may think that they think may not be the truth. You deal with facts. But he goes on here. Verse 17. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile or tax collector to you. Basically saying, you don't have a whole lot of fellowship with them. Because they're unwilling to repent. They're unwilling to change. So therefore, the friendships are going to get a little loose here. You don't want that. I don't want that for our church. You shouldn't want that for your church. You should want to restore the fellowship. But when biblical confrontation doesn't happen, it's quite probable that God's blessings will cease. Let me ask a question. This is hypothetical. Why is it that some churches pray for God's hand to do something, this, that, or that, another thing specifically, for 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and just seemingly God just doesn't do it? So he's just a nasty God that's up there somewhere in the heavens is saying, I'm not going to bless you. Forget that idea. Keep praying, but I'm not going to do anything. Is he just a narcissistic God who controls whether or not he chooses to answer prayers or not? No. Sometimes he chooses not to bless because there's unresolved sin issues within the church. In our church? Maybe. I'm not coming into this with any idea that I got you know, three people who are ticked off at these three people and we're going to deal with it today. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this. Sometimes there's real genuine peace and sometimes there's perceived real peace that really isn't real. One is because we genuinely love. The other one is because we just avoid. So let me ask this question. You and God know the answer. Who you at odds with? Anybody? Who is it that God wants you to restore a relationship with? Don't wait for them to come to you. God's word says go to them. Leave the, leave the gift at the altar and go. Matthew 18, 15, go. Who is it that you need to deal with? If it's sin, you've got to deal with it. And let me just say, the differing opinion can turn into sin, undealt with. You may want a gray wall, someone else wanted tan. You didn't get your way, so you griped and griped and griped. Guess what? Your differing opinion turned into sin because you couldn't let it go. Now you're causing discord, sin. Now you're murmuring, grumbling, sin. What is it that God wants you to do concerning differing opinions and those who sin against you?
I, as a pastor, said, man, I want God's blessing on this church. But in every church, as a body, when one hurts, we all hurt. That sore tooth, it affects your entire body. When you've got a toothache, it hurts. You don't feel like going to work. Well, what's wrong with your feet? What's wrong with your hands? Nothing, but my tooth hurts, so you don't feel like doing anything. You stressed your back, and your back hurts. Well, ain't nothing wrong with your feet. Ain't nothing wrong with your head. Go to work. But your back affects your entire body. When one hurts, we all hurt. When there's unresolved conflict, it affects the whole. So we have to deal with it. So I ask you the question that you and God know the answer to. Is there someone that you need to talk to? Is there somebody that you have unresolved conflict with that needs to be dealt with? And if so, are you willing to do it? Because if you don't, you're going to forfeit God's blessing. You're going to forfeit a right relationship with him. Dr. Ola used to say at Northland, no one sins in a vacuum. All sin affects those around you. When I'm not right with God, it affects my family. Ask them. They know. And though you think it's between you and God, it affects your family too. And they know. You can't hide these things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word again, to apply it to our hearts and our lives. I pray that we would at least, Lord. Lord, I have to believe that there are times in our own church family that there are circumstances and situations, Lord, where we choose not to deal with it because we just don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to stir the pot. We don't want to be that person. And because of it, Lord, we try to avoid confrontation. And as a result, dear Father, we have a perceived peace that's not real. I ask God that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed and just